Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 333. This program is dedicated by Pamela Newman in loving memory of Joan Bychowski and Diane Neff of blessed memory. Tonight is Yudalad Kislev, the 14th of Kislev, the 92nd anniversary of the marriage and wedding of the Rebbe and the Rebbe's in Chaim Mushka in the year Tofresh Peites in Warsaw, Poland. The 25th anniversary of the wedding was a Shabbos, Shabbos Vayishlach Tofshin Yudalad, which is the equivalent of the year 1953, the end of 53. And at the end of the Fabrengen, which was a Fabrengen dedicated much to the wedding and marriage, the Rebbe spoke about many different customs, he was clearly celebrating that day. At the end of the Fabrengen, the Rebbe said that in general, a marriage is an inyan prati. It's a specific thing for the people who are getting married. But by me, it drew me in to inyanim klolim, meaning to my public affairs. And then the Rebbe said these words. Das ist der Tag, was hat mir verbunden mit euch und euch mit mir und zusammen, weil mir ausmachen, die Gula mit ist war schlimmer. To translate loosely, the Rebbe said, this is the day which connected me to you and you to me, and together we will we will push through the Geula Amitiz Vashlema, which means we'll work hard, exert ourselves to bring the Geula, and God should help that we shall see fruit from our labor fruit from our efforts. So by doing saying that, the, the Rebbe established that Yudal Kislev is a Yem Kloli and one that is a connection between us. Because this was the day that he married the Rebetzin, which in turn made him the son-in-law of the Friedrich Rebbe, which in turn in Tafshin Yud, which is 70 years ago, going into the 71st year and uh, is when the Rebbe assumed the leadership of the Deir Ashvi, the Deir Ashvi, the Nasi Ashvi, the Rebbe, together with the Rebbetzin. So, therefore, it's a day worth not just celebrating, but honoring and reconnecting to that connection that this day represents. So, on a most basic level, it's essentially about Tiskashrus, connection, understanding that the Rebbe was sent and the Rebbetzin were sent to this earth on a shlichus by God, to lead the way in this seventh generation to finishing the last touches and bringing the Gula mitiz v'ashlema, as the Rebbe says specifically. So therefore, the Rebbe gave us the shlichus, tells us what we should be doing, our part in that fashion. So this is a day when we recommit in the fullest sense of the word, and as the Rebbe said, Ismat in the Gulamitis Vashlema. The Rebbe already established a few years before that in the Maimer Bosiligani, Tovshin Yudalif. This year will be 70 years, Yudshvat, when the Maimer was delivered, that this is the mission of our time. The last generation in Golis is to bring the Shekhinah down below. So, on a practical level, that means each one of us has to look into our hearts and souls on a day like this and say, okay, what are the fruit that we bear from our efforts? What have we done today and tomorrow and the next day 
to reach other people, reach ourselves and reach other people with being aware of what it means to live in the time of the Geula. What kind of life will it be like? And emulate, live by that. That's on the learning level. And on the action level is to actually live by it and spread goodness and kindness to all people you meet, Jews and non-Jews, and for Yidin, especially the Tadyag Mitzvahs. The Mitzvahs, Teda and Mitzvahs, Teda Vedig Mils Chasadim, as the Rebbe instructed us. So it's a day to commit to that and understand that we are then living up to the true nature of this connection that we have. Obviously, there are many other lessons that can be derived. The mere fact that there's a yichud, when you talk about a chasana, we have the Maimori chasana that the Friedrich Rebbe said at the Rebbe's wedding. And we also have the Maimorim that the Rebbe Rashab said at the Friedrich Rebbe's wedding. We have the Maimori chasana from all the Rabbeim, actually, Drushe chasana stand out as a big part of Maimorichs that the Rabbeim said, a big part, relatively speaking, was focused on chasana. Where chasana below reflects the chasana above, that it's a union that touches all levels. So essentially it's the concept of achdus. And not just an achdus, but like all the Sheva Brachas talk about, ultimately leading to Meheri Yashama, again, leading to the Geula. When there'll be the total, the, full, the culmination, and the consummation of Yem Chasanos is at the marriage and fusion between heaven and earth in the fullest sense of the word with the Geula. So therefore it makes sense that the Rebbe would refer to the Geula because a personal chasana, in this case the chasana of a Rebbe, who would be a Rebbe, was an Inyan Kloli, is connected to the Yem Chasanose, the Nesuyan that will be La'osad Love in the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. And the Ismatrin, because it takes work. Golas and the concealments and all the challenges we have need to be worked through. It doesn't come automatically, it takes effort. But as the Rebbe concludes, and we shall see fruits from our efforts. And obviously all the fruits since then, when this was said in that, in that Tzicha, 20, the 25th anniversary, all the work that was done, clearly we've seen fruits, but we're still not at the total finish line, which is when we need to achieve now with our work, especially after the Rebbe gave us the mandate, Chov Ches Nissen, which will also be, this year will be 30 years, when the Rebbe said, I did everything I can, now do what you can. So that partnership that he established, when he said, the day that bound us together, now he's saying, I did everything I can, now you have to do your part, in addition to what you've done, but now you have to push it through and finally finish the last steps of the work and ultimately see the fruit of our labor, which is the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. Okay. Since we're talking about the Yudal Kislev, I will, there were a few questions that had come in now and uh, earlier. So let's talk about Yudalot Kislev issues, a few of them. I will refer you to previous episodes where I've talked about this already, uh, uh, specifically episode 91, 140, 180, 190, 235, and 285, I believe. So here are a few questions that I will address in addition to what was discussed in those previous episodes. Those episodes, I should mention, can be seen at chsidasapply.com, where you have all the previous episodes archived, as well as many other resources, as well as the forum where you can submit any question anonymously, and I will get to it, 
hopefully sooner than later. So here's a question someone asked. Why is it that the Rebbe's parents weren't able to attend his wedding? Was it a passport traveling issue? So what we know is the following. We know they both lived in Yekaterinoslav then, which was, of course, in communist Soviet Union. And it was not easy to travel at all, especially, as we know, the Rebbe's father would ultimately be arrested later, but he was clearly being watched. So it was just not possible. There was hope that Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe writes in a letter when they designated the day Yudalit Kislev for the wedding, there was still hope that maybe they would come and then it would be changed the date to make accommodate them. But at the end they did not, were not able to come. So in that sense there was a certain sadness, but on the other hand we have the Rishimus from the Rebbe Sachana, and we have other uh, manuscripts, other notes and diaries that testify to the fact that in Yekaterinoslav was a simcha shein kamei. It was an unbelievable celebration that the, Rebbe, that the Rebbe's parents led the marriage of their children. The Rebbe's father wrote the Rebbe 101 page, 101 word a telegram actually, as well as other letters preparing him for the wedding, which we have actually in, in the Kutta Levi Yitzchok printed. These letters are printed in the part of the letters that are printed in the in the seder in this in the. Set called Tedus Lekut Levi Yitzchok Tedus Levi Yitzchok. So, though, as I said, obviously it would have been unbelievable how they've been there, but for Ashgacha Pratis it didn't it didn't happen, and yet they celebrated deeply their sons, their oldest sons' marriage and wedding. Right. A next question that's connected to marriage. Why doesn't the Torah give marriage advice? Isn't it one of the most important parts of Yiddishkeit? Also, why are there so few mitzvahs regarding marriage? There are many prohibitions, but not many mitzvahs, especially not that are relevant today. Very good question. And uh, in a way, the answer to both questions are interdependent. So the first thing that comes to mind, because the Torah is not one of these self-help manuals. The Torah gives us the best direction by giving us living examples of people who had beautiful, loving, holy, sacred marriages. So when you read the story about Odom and Chava, and you read the story about Avram and Sarah, and Yitzchak and Rivka, and Yaakov and Leah and Rachel, and so on, what you get is the best living example. Instead of writing a theoretical advice, you look at their lives. Now, of course, you'll say, one second, there were some issues there as well, and the same thing of Ramosara, but you get a full picture. You don't just get a rosy picture of some, you also get the challenges that they had when Avram and Sarah had to deal with Yishmol, and Hashem told Avram to listen to Sarah. So it wasn't just, it was a full life. And that's the best advice possible, because people who lived it, and they happened to be that happened to be, they are our ancestors. We have their genes. We're told, when will we reach the level of our patriarchs and matriarchs? So when you think about it, the Torah could have, yes, if it was a, uh, a self-help book or a marriage counseling manual, you'd have, okay, here are 10 tips, which I'm not saying doesn't have any value at all, but there's nothing like living it. When you live in a home, and your parents are loving parents, and they're giving, and they're functional, and they're healthy, 
both in the physical matters of marriage and the spiritual matters of marriage. There's nothing that can beat that. I don't care any book, no matter how good marriage tips you'll find, there's nothing like living in a home like that. When we learn Torah, we we're learning as if Avram and Sarah are in our home right now. That's how we should be learning it. And learning is by example. They are our Ovis and Imois. Maisa Ovis, Simen Lebonim. Their actions are a simon, a direction to us, but also gives us strength. That is the best possible advice. Regarding the second part of the answer, the same thing. The Torah has to tell us things that need to be pointed out. What's not right, what's... The Torah is assuming that we're following the healthy guidelines and the healthy role models. And therefore does not have to spell out all the positive things. I understand that today, because marriage is so under assault and challenged due to many different reasons, which here is not the place to analyze. So some things have to be spelled out once upon a time. They do not have to be spelled out because you just lived it. You grew up in a loving home. You just emulate it. It's like how you breathe. You don't have to be taught how to breathe. You don't have a guidebook how to breathe. You only be taught how to breathe, God forbid, when breathing is challenged. So yes, today our job is to translate and apply Torah principles, Hasidic principles, to spell out to marriages because we don't have those role models necessarily. Or in some ways they're compromised. We live in a world where marriage is under assault, let's be honest. Very toxic, the attitudes. The sanctity of a relationship is completely not appreciated. So now we have to go to the Torah and say, okay, what do we derive from Avram's behavior, from Sarah's behavior, and the same with Yitzchok and Rivka. And when you look at it, you see such beauty. You see love, you see modesty, you see sanctity, you see commitment. Commitment, giving, the essence of what a marriage is all about. And of course, bringing up children, healthy children. Now, of course, you'll say, what about Yaakov and Esav, and what about the Shvatim had their challenges, and, and, and Avram had Yitzchok and uh, Yishmael. That's part of life. Part of life is having children, different children, and yes, there may be challenges. Here, I'm not going to go into the lessons we derive from it, but there you have the answer. that We actually do have marriage gui- guidance, and I would say it's the best guidance of all, because not only does it have pointers, and lessons, but it also has living examples that we can emulate. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I've been bothered by the custom brought in the Torah regarding the patriarchs and matriarchs, and so too with Chabad, and possibly other Hasidic dynasties, customs of marrying close relative relations. This week we celebrate the Rebbe and Rebbe's marriage again. Again, cousins. Now that, now, now that we know that marrying cousins is far from the best, genetic, best thing genetically for the progeny, why did they do it? What can we learn from this custom? Basically, what is the Torah's attitude? The Torah's position on marrying cousins. So let's start with the halacha matter. Yes, it's acceptable from a Torah point of view. You actually have the B'nai Slavcha, the daughters of Slavcha, the Torah says specifically in the Sefer Bamid, but that they married cousins. And yes, indeed, as you, as you said, many, many in the case of uh, the Rabbeim, I don't believe anyone married, did there, was there ever a first cousin? There may be. The Rebbe and the Rebetzin happened to be not first cousins, not even second cousins. 
because they both originate from the Semach Tzedek. So you have to go from the Marash, the Rebbe Rashafri, they could be talking about four generations later. Their, their great, great, great grandparents were uh, brothers. But regardless, you do have closer cousins. And Avram, of course, told, uh, told Eliezer, and the same thing was when Yaakov was sent by his parents to go find a, uh, someone from where they originated and some family type of member. Not that could be a cousin, it could be further than a cousin, but yes, relations. So if the Torah says so and allows it, it means that it's not going to cause danger, definitely not something inappropriate. Why? There are different reasons given why it's allowed. Um, nevertheless, you find, in the case with, let's say, Avram, and the same thing I would say with the Rabbeim, the reason would most likely be because they come from royalty. It's coming from the same royal family, so to speak. Not talking about an external way, but people who were educated with certain, an approach to life. I'll say that uh, Rachel, or, uh, or in case, I'm sorry, Rivka, or Sheshana Ben Achechem, it says, like a rose among thorns, because she had a father, Psuel, and a brother, Lovan, and so on. Um, talk about Rivka now. So, nevertheless, nevertheless, she was a Shoshana. Why? Because she did have some of the genes, the same genes that Avram had. So that would be the most likely reason that it was, it was encouraged, or at least followed, by certain individuals. Not always. But generally speaking, it was not something that was common. As a matter of fact, there are many Jewish families that frown upon it. The Rabbeim? The Rabbeim are of, of a different blood, you can argue. So, regarding the genetic issues, I mean, there are different opinions on the matter. Many say that it's not, yes, it does increase certain genetic pool issues that can be, God forbid, an issue. But it's not to the point where you say, marry a cousin guaranteed that this is going to cause, or even high odds. It does have some effects, medical authorities say, but at the same time, it's not to the extent where you could say the Torah is putting anybody in a dangerous situation. This is how I would explain it. Um, now, as far as a question, which is a related question, there are states in the United States that actually forbid cousins marrying. So obviously the Torah says that when there's a law of the land, you have to follow the law of the land. There's no mitzvah to marry a cousin. But the exceptions, when it happened, it most likely happened in the situations as I described because of their genetic pool. Now, we know that other, not in the Jewish world, whether it was monarchs and czars and so on, there was a lot of inter-so-called mingling. And, it, and uh, there I'm not going to discuss because that's not necessarily based on the Torah. That may have been based on other factors. And uh, it's not necessarily relevant to our discussion here. Okay. Hi, Raf Simon. Last week in your second shear to the new Kailal, let me just explain what that is. I began giving a class, a new Kailal here in Crown Heights, which actually you can see it on kailal.nyc online. I give a class twice a week. One is more direction and guidance to uh, this Kailal. These are young people who just got married, this uh, young men studying who just got married in the past year, and on, that's on uh, Tuesday evenings. And on Thursday mornings, I give a class in Ayin Bayes to this group. So someone's referring to that. Last week in your second shir to the new Kail, you were going, you were giving marriage advice. You related a story of a Yechidus, personal audience with the Rebbe. You quoted the Rebbe as saying, 
It's not the job of the husband to be a mashpia to his wife. But then you ended your advice with, take her for a walk, show her kindness, and it will be easier to have ashba on her. This is confusing. It is a mixed message. Please, can you clear this up? Thank you, Rabbi Simon. So let me first um, dwell a little more on the statement. Husband and wife are husband and wife. When he says, you should have a rav, a mentor, a mashpia, does not mean your spouse should be a mashpia. It should be someone outside for many reasons. A marriage is built not on one being the authority of the other or one giving directives. At the same time, obviously, in a beautiful marriage, each one learns from the other, but it's through inspiration. So it's not a contradiction. The husband shouldn't appoint himself as a mashpia of his wife. When there's a beautiful, loving relationship, the wife will ask the husband. And the same thing the other way around. But that does not replace an outsider who's more objective, more of like an authority figure, like a rov or a mashpia. Now, Bamela, when people are very kind and loving and beautiful to each other, obviously that alone could be have a deepest hashpa of all. You always receive from someone who you feel you care about and cares about you. So it's not about a, a manipulative way of get, becoming a mashpia by being kind, and then you can sneak in some of your uh, guidelines. No, that's not what it's meant to be. A marriage is an equal relationship between husband and wife, and they need to find a way to beautify, do it al piteta. They have a question individually or collectively, you go ask someone. But generally speaking, they should be each other's best friends and people who are connected on the deepest possible level in a divine and sacred way. And obviously, if one asks the other advice, especially when, when they uh, love each other, obviously one will turn to the other. But that's a separate discussion than what we're talking about, a mashpia or a rav, in that formal sense. Okay. With that, let us move from Yudalat Kislev. We shall now move to Yutes Kislev. Next Shabbos will be Yutes Kislev, 222 years ago, the Altarebbe was released from prison, and ever since called the Chag Ula, the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus, where we wish each other good yontif, and we say, L'shana Teva, Belimud HaChassidus, or Bedarki HaChassidus, Tikhoseva V'sichoseinu. So though next Sunday will be Chav Kislev, the continuation of Yutas Kislev, and we will address that then, but being that it is our custom to talk about the days ahead of us, especially leading to Shabbos, Shabbos Pasha Vayishlach Yutas Kislev. So let's talk about Yutas Kislev. Okay. Now again, I've discussed Yutas Kislev in previous episodes. We can find them at chsidasupply.com. I will try not to be redundant and try to speak about some new angles. So Yutas Kislev, bottom line, Rosh Hashanah Chsidis is a big statement. It's a Rosh Hashanah. It means all of Chsidis began on that day. I, Chassidus, was already founded by the Baal Shem Tev and the Magad of Mizrich, his student, and the Alter Rebbe himself was already teaching Chassidus Chabad. Yet, something about Yutas Kislev, Tov Kuf, Nun Tes, the year equivalent 1898, 1798, I'm sorry, 1798, that something happened. Says the Rebbe Rashab in Teir Shalom, that the beginning of your in the fullest sense of the word. Now, obviously, the kernels and the seeds were planted by the Baal Shem Tov, but it was Nekudis, short taters. The Magid, also short taters. The Alter Rebbe, before Petterburg, it's called, because Petterburg is where he sat in prison, before Petterburg was much briefer, the taters. 
except for exceptions. Tanya, obviously, was published before Yitzchak Kislev. But the real Harchove, Lefiyerech, of Chochmah, of the Alter Rebbe, began afterwards. And especially the license from heaven that said, now, as the Bashem and the Magid told the Alter Rebbe when he was in prison, now, after you're released, you begin spreading it in a completely new way. It was vindicated. So someone asked a question, and I'll elaborate more on this with this question, a very klotzkasha. I learned in yeshiva that the Alter Rebbe being arrested by the authorities for writing the Tanya mirrored a spiritual court case where they were upset that the Alter Rebbe revealed Hasidus. It's even said that the Alter Rebbe sat in prison for 53 days, corresponding to the 53 chapters in Tanya. I can understand that earthly authorities can make mistakes, but why should the spiritual authorities be upset at someone teaching Torah? The whole purpose of creation is for us to refine ourselves and our surroundings and reveal godliness within the physical world. And the Torah is our instruction manual on how to accomplish it. Whatever can be wrong with teaching Torah? This case, Chassidus. Excellent question. I actually addressed it a number of times, I believe in previous years as well. So briefly, why would heaven be opposed to the Alter Rebbe teaching Chassidus? So the answer is clear from the mere fact that there was such a resistance means that the stakes were high. Just use an example. People ask the question, Odem Chava, according to some opinions, had they waited three hours, the Eitz which was a vine, according to the opinions, they would have made Kiddush on that very, on those, the wine from those grapes. So the whole thing is they couldn't control themselves three hours. And the Rebbe brings it quite often. Three hours. But the stakes were extremely high. So you can imagine that all the negative forces which are embodied in the Nochash, in the serpent, all the forces of Lu'umazah knew the stakes. Had they not eaten from it, the Gula would come. So think of it this way. The collective Yetzir Horus of billions and billions of people were all there, right there, because there were no other human beings. All coming together. Look how hard it is for us when we're tempted. One second. Control yourself for one second. No, it's not easy. Imagine billions of Yetzirahs, or billions of challenges too, because the stakes are high. I know this is not a comparison, because that was a chet. Here the Alter Rebbe is teaching Chassidus, but the comparison goes this way. Whenever there's a tremendous new revelation coming into the world, there is always going to be a force that's going to oppose it. That's the way God created the world. By Matan Teda, unbelievable Gilui. What happens? Right, 39 days later, the Chet HaEgel. Whenever there's great revelation, there's always going to be some opposition. So the Alter Rebbe, Chesidus in general, but the Alter Rebbe specifically was on the verge of beginning to transform the world on a Shama Chadasha with a new approach, new meaning, not new Chaz Rasholim, new. It was all given at Sinai, but there comes a time, just like there's a time for the Mishnah to be written down, the time for the Gemara, everything has its time. The time to bring Teirosa Shal Mashiach. The Rebbe explains two reasons 
why the time had come. One, because the darkness was so deep and he needed a much stronger resources, deeper resources to fight the darkness and the famous marshal that the Alter Rebbe gave when he was working with the Magid and the Pinchas Karitzer. And Pinchas Karitzer saw a bletel, a page of Chassidus, all soiled on the ground. I said, look at this. Look how it's being defiled. Maybe it means that we should be careful how we reveal this precious wisdom. That until then was only Yechidus Gul, only individuals, in cryptic language. Individually, it was not allowed and meant to be spread because it could be abused, it would be misunderstood, would be not appreciated. So it was always a subliminal undercurrent of the Jewish narrative. But it was not, ex- not explicit, explicit until the Arizal said, Mitzvah And then the Balshemtiv in the words of the Mashiach, Yofutsu Chutzo. So the Alter Rebbe gave the famous Moshul in response of the king whose young child fell sick to the point he was on his deathbed and the only solution, they couldn't find any healing. One doctor said, if you take the most precious stone from the king's crown and you crush it and take the powder and mix it with water and try to get a drop or two, you need the clenched teeth of the comatose child that may revive him. And the king said, of course, not even a question. What do I need this kingship, this whole kingdom, if my son is not alive? So even if a lot of it will drop on the floor, like the chassidus that was on the floor, but it's worth it because you're saving the child. That's reason number one. Reason number two, because it's Friday right before Shabbos, the sixth millennia is like the sixth day of creation. We taste from the delights. We taste from the food. We taste from the teda that will be taught when Mashiach comes. What teda is that? That talks about godliness and the revelation of godliness. Not just what God wants of us. I don't want to say just, it's not a just, but it's more the mechanics of Judaism. But the godliness that's revealed through it and the connection of bringing the divine to earth. And that's what the Alter Rebbe was on the verge of developing into a comprehensive blueprint called Chassidus Chabad. Ah, that's what's happening. You're talking Geula now. Not so fast. So the forces that were created, not at their will, like it says, the Satan is also doing it because God wants, but he's in pain. He has to do something that he doesn't want to do. The forces, the negative forces arose and said, one second, this is dangerous territory. And therefore became a danger. And al Rebbe was arrested. But... Just as there was the question and the challenge, then came the res- response. You not only continue, but more than ever, and, and the Altareb was vindicated, and Chassidus Chabad was born, and all the Rabbeim that followed until this very day. So everything we talk about, and this whole program, Chassidus applied is all in that, in that spirit, and due to that miraculous victory. So it wasn't just, okay, got out of prison, great. We celebrate it till this day because a new chapter began, a watershed moment, a new revolution started. And we are asked now to continue it and finish it. Finish it? It will just begin when Mashiach comes. But for now, finish the job of Ismat and the Golas, uh, and eliminating the Golas with the Tate of Chassidus, which has the power 
Now that we have chassidus, that language, that a seichel adam, the intelligence of people like ourselves, we're not necessarily on the highest, loftiest level of piety, can, uh, can have language to be mamchish, to be able to tangibly, in a resonating way, godliness through the language of Teda Sachsidis, Pnimis So that was the challenge. But as the Rabbein brings Tarshi Yatsal a contract that was challenged, and then they were Makayimit in Bezdin, they, they, the, the, the contract held up after it was appealed and challenged, you no longer can ever challenge it again. Because the challenge was a challenge, but once you confirm it and affirm it, now it has an indestructible strength. And that's what Yutas Kislev is each year, and every year, Mayalim Bukedish in a greater sense. And the, the lesson to each of us is very clear to doing exactly this, taking chassidus and applying it to our lives, our personal lives, the lives of our families and our children and every person we can reach. To disseminate and distribute these wellsprings, the core wellsprings, the crown jewel of the king's crown, the most precious jewel, to the farthest outskirts possible both in space and in time and in concept, reaching everyone with a message that Chassidus has the, has, provides the tools, the instruments, the methodologies to live up to our greatest potential and our calling in this world and, and through individually microcosm, lead the macrocosm to personal and global redemption, Gaula. Okay. Here someone writes, continuing Yutas Kislev theme, which of course we're focusing on. This was actually a follow-up to episodes, many episodes back, um, which actually episode 267, now we're 333. Rapsimen, thank you from a fan who's benefited much from your incredible project. I'd like to point out an amazing sikha which relates to a question from a recent episode the episode was 267, about everyone becoming Shemir Teirah Mitzvah for Mashiach to come, as a supplement to the good points you made in answering that question. Really, this sikh, in my humble opinion, is fundamental in many other ways as well, and answers other similar questions. It's from Parsha Vayishlach, Yudches Kislev, Tov Shin Mem Zayim. I'll share some points and you can check the source for more. After explaining basic siddhis of the story, and this is also coming to answer another question that was asked, and I should probably read that. What lessons do we learn from Parsha Vayishlach in connection to Yutas Kislev? So he says, after explaining basic siddhis of the story in Parsha Vayishlach, which is of course the Loshan of Shlichus, Vayishlach from the word that Yaakov sent Shluchim, Shluchus, where he analyzes Yaakov and Esav, which comes after the bitter of Lavan. Yaakov wants to move on to Esav. After 20 years by Lavan and Charan, now he's moving to meet Esav and finish the job and bring the Gula. And that's why he sent Shluchim, 
as Chassidus explains in Teda Eid, Teda Shchayim, Shluchim, because he was sure that Esav was ready, ready for the Geula. Esav was already refined. But Esav down here wasn't ready. So Yaakov had to send Shluchim to bring, when Yaakov finds out, he then has to bring a minchala Esav to appease him, to calm him down, which is preparation for ni ove acharechem, because then afterwards they reconcile. So once he heard that Esav wasn't ready, Yaakov was afraid. <coughs> and that's why he prepared three ways. He davened, he prayed, he prepared an uh, appeasement, and he prepared for war. Thank God he didn't have to go to war. So the appeasement when the prayer worked, and then they meet. And they reconcile two different opinions, whether they kissed and embraced with full heart or not full heart, but there was definitely no war. Then Esau says to Yaakov, so now let us, come live by me, near Sawyer, where Esau lived. Yaakov recognized he's not ready yet, so therefore he responds that you go ahead, I will come slowly. The children are young, the sheep are tender. Now, so we have to go through stages of birur until we're ready for the gu'ula. So Rashi asks immediately, says again, he's deceiving Esau? You already deceived Esau. And we know the explanation for that. So he says, no, he was telling him the truth. For The end of Avadi says, one day when Mashiach comes, we will be together. So slowly means the slowly the Avedah. Then the Rebbe says the following, this writer writes, how could Yaakov think that the Gula was here and he's ready to finish with Esav and we're done? When there was a bris ben Absarim where Hashem told Avram Avinu, that the Jewish people, your children, will be in a land that's not their own and they'll be oppressed. Number two, all the 70 nations, including idol worshippers, Yaakov saw in his travels from Choran, to Eretz Yisrael, to meet Esau. So how could he feel that the Gula is ready? And the Rebbe answers, it must be that Yaakov was totally focused on his specific and immediate shlichus, and the 70 nations, and even Esau is not his concern, his brother. He has to be mevadet Esau, and, and in that, he's matzliach. To explain a little further, and this taka connects you to Eskislev to, to um, the theme we're discussing. I just want to share my honor actually to prepare the sikha for the Rebbe's Haggah, the Rebbe's editing. So there, there's also sites, a sikha from the Friedrich Rebbe, that the connection to Vayishlach is because Vayishlach is about Birurim. And Yutas Kislev came to be Mavara the Birurim of Tayu. Esau represents Tayu. Esau represents the material world. Yaakov represents Teireh, Ish Tom Yeshev Aholim. Esav is Ish Mochame Yedetzayde, Ish Sada. He was a man of the field, a warrior. Represents the Nefesh Habamis. Tanya explains that Yaakov and that the Nefesh Alekis Nefesh Habamis are at battle with each other. So Chassidus comes to empower us in this battle. Now Yaakov is doing everything possible to refine the material world represented by Esav. 
Initially, he thinks maybe we're there, but then he realizes not. So now the work continues. This is what Yutas Kislev came to introduce, the work. I, we did refinement till now, but like I said earlier, it's a new stage. This is like the last push, the last stage of the battle. So it is an amazing sicha. I will couple the sicha with looking at the sicha of Vayishlach and Vayeshev Tovshin Nun Beis, which takes it even further where he says that in the time of the Alta Rebbe, like Yaakov, they were not yet ready, the Jewish people, to refine the Western world. That's why the Alta Rebbe opposed Napoleon and supported Alexander, because even though it would be more difficult physically for the Jews, but spiritually it would be better, and they would not be ready for that Western godless world, self-made world, that felt aniva afsiye, me and nothing else. But the Rebbe says, seven generations later, we are ready. We've refined France and Europe, and we're ready to take on this challenge. Faratsta is the same letters as Tsarfas, as the Rebbe explains there. And that's why now we could take the challenge. That's why the Rebbe said in Tavshin Lama Dalit, Simchasteira, he turned the song, he said, Chsidim turned the song, the Marseille, which was the, the song of France. It's an aggressive military song, turned it into Aderes Vamuna Lachai Elam. Yeah, these are very powerful sikhs that really explain Vayishlach in the context of Yutas Kislev. It's an amazing correlation, teaching us what we can do now. Which leads to the next question. Mashpia and Chief Rab Simon. Is there a correlation between the campaign to teach non-Jews about the seven Noahide laws and the idea of Birush Shal Esov, which is something that will lead to Lo'asad Lavei. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the early years, but especially in the last 10 years, starting from around Tovshin Lamed Ches, Tovshin Mem, the Rebbe began aggressively and accelerating the talk about Sheva Mitzvah Neach. That's the refinement, especially Malchus Edoim, which is the final Golis, Malchus Edoim, Golis Edoim, Edoim, that's Esau, who Edoim, the children of Esau. Esau had a grandchild, Rome, at the end of this parasha by Yishlach. You see the last verse, Magdiel Zuremi, Rome. The Roman Western Christian Empire. And that is the bitter. So absolutely, as we come to the close of our Aveda, that began in the beginning of time, Matan Teda added a whole new dimension. But then the Bnei Esau and the Bnei Yishmol still rejected the Teda. That ultimately there would be the refinement Come to the Yutes Kislev, opened up the door, Chsidis, transforming the world. And seven generations later, the Rebbe, Sheva Mitzvah Bnei Neach. So it's absolutely all connected. And it's interesting, Yutes Kislev comes out with Ampasha Vayishlach, as does the Rebbe's marriage, Yudalit Kislev. So it's no accident that everything's Bashgacha practice. Since we're on this topic already, I might as well read this one. Hi, Rabbi. Thank you for your program. My question relates to today's chitas. He's referring to Pasha Vayetze. So let's address that. So it's a few days earlier than today. We learned that Yaakov come, came empty-handed to love him because Eliphaz stole all of Yaakov's money. However, in the very next verse, we learned that Yaakov was an extremely strong person and easily removed the stone of the well that many people could not do. If he was so strong, why did he give all his money to Eliphaz? Thanks in advance. 
In other words, you're suggesting since he's so strong, you just should have fought him. But this goes back to the whole story that we are reading now, this Chapasha, the Muhammad that Yaakov has with Esau, with the Sarshal Esau, the Malach. And you see, even though Yaakov prevails, but the Esau, but the Malach of Esau dislocates his hip, sciatica nerve, Gidhanosha. And for that reason, we don't need the Gidhanosha. The Ramban says something very powerful and very painful that his dislocating, wounding the hip of Yaakov opened the door and is the cause for all the tzaddikim through the generations, children of Yaakov, that would suffer. So as long as we're in Golas, we suffer still. Though the Yaakov prevailed and Yisrael, that's why he's named Yisrael, which gave him the power, but the, but the end of the story is when Mashiach will come. So it's not because he was strong or not, because Alifaz, son of Esau, still had power. And Yaakov was allowing him maybe to appease Esau, or he realized his strength. Yaakov was just going then to Lavan. We had to first do the bitter of Lavan. Chesidus explains Lavan is Klippas Nega, Esau is Shal Sometimes it says the opposite way around. This Sichus in Tav Shemem Zayin, I believe that I refers to it in the footnote there. So the point is, Yaakov was well aware at this point that there was still a bitter. So it wasn't about how strong he was. It's about sometimes recognizing that he still has to somewhat, I don't want to say the word compromise, but somewhat work with the bidurim. And that's what the significance was in this case. So it all ties in and much more. But let's continue on. We've covered Yudal Kislev, we've covered Yutes Kislev. Okay, now, what can I say to you? The, the, the letters and the emails keep coming in about the elections, Trump and Biden. So let me just tell you this. Um, I can tell you equally, you get both type of letters, emails, I would say. They're anonymous. I don't know who they are. Sometimes someone writes their name. Some are saying, why don't you support Biden as much as you supported Trump if God willed it that way? Some are saying this election was a fraud. As I said last week and two weeks ago, this is not a political show. I'm not here to talk about politics. It happens to be an important reality. A part of life is the leaders that are elected. But it's God that runs the show. The reason I do talk about it, as I said last week at length, is because it can have an effect on our Vedas Hashem, and that's what we should be focusing on. So I will not ignore it because many people are writing about it, but what I'll do is, because there's so much written, and I just don't, don't feel I want to write now, the honor of Yutas Kislev, I would either focus on how do we use this presidential election as a way, as a stepping stone, and as a path forward towards introducing even more Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Neach as the Parsha continues. Because the United States, as Russia, most of the Western world, are ultimately part of Golis Eden, of which is this theme of Ayishlach, Esav. And as I once wrote an article, the two faces of Esav, Esav can behave in ways that are atrocious, but Esav can also behave in ways that are benevolent. And ultimately that's the goal. So in that context, yes, there's room to discuss this topic. But due to time, I will just suffice by saying, repeating that point, 
And I will address the issues, I assure you, in the next week or two. I just want to use the time well here and focus on a next series of questions which is connected to COVID. Okay. But briefly, I will say the following before I continue. I can't speak for any other rabbi or other people who are stating their thoughts on this matter. From my perspective, and I say this for the record again and again, we are not supporters of individuals. We support God's agenda. In this world, especially in a country like ours where there's elections, different nominees, different candidates, we try to find the one that we can most identify with, not on a personal level, but that they'll lead this country in the spirit of what this country was meant to be. Whoever is the elected president, in this case, clearly, it's President-elect Biden, we hope and pray that he will, exactly as we hoped and prayed that Trump, four years ago, will live up to the legacy of this country and not betray it, and not in any way hurt it. And I would say this about every president-elect. Did Trump have qualities that many Jewish people, or others, I mean, over 74 million people, felt that not because necessarily they liked his personality, some actually uh, are appalled by his personality, but they still liked some of the policies. They liked the disruption of Washington, and so on and so forth. That's their right. But over 80 million people voted for President Biden. Now, whether these numbers are accurate, I'm not judging that. We go by the laws of the land, and if there was fraud, either way, whether there was fraud four years ago, as it was accused, or now, then the day this country, you and I are not going to decide this. It's going to be decided either by a consensus or some other fashion. So there's no point to discuss it. So whoever comes out as the president, I remember Bush and Gore, if you recall, it was hundreds of votes. But then there's the result, and there's the result, and that's what you go by. Will we ever know, was it accurate or not? But that's who you, he became president. <clears throat> so we hope and pray, and we'll do everything possible to pray for the president and for this country to do what is right. So this type of innuendos that I receive why aren't you as strong for Biden as you are for Trump? Or why don't you support the, the fraud movement and say Trump should be the elected? Because at the end of the day, we have to do what we can do and, make, and try our best to make sure that the leaders of all, all levels will follow the mandate of this country, which is the mandate connected to a divine element of all men are created equal, all in God we trust, principles of morality and ethics that are based on a higher power. In the Rebbe's words, a moment of silence, teaching people that there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. That's what we should be pushing and advocating and promoting and advancing. So the more specific details I shall read. Not now we'll do that in the next week or two. Okay, good. So now come the next series of questions, which COVID is hanging in the air, all the different back and forth about that. So let's talk about that. Start with the first one. How can we rely on authorities when it's possible that the blind are leading the blind? There you go. 
I started thinking a lot about what you say, that we have to follow the directives of the rabbinic and health professionals. And that makes sense to me. But what if the blind are leading the blind? And we don't even know it. As it was ruled that churches and synagogues can't be closed, this ruling of the Supreme Court this past Thursday, Wednesday night, is that what makes it right when the courts tell us? Picture 1940. If we got the same advice to listen to authority, how do we know when to stop and think for ourselves and, and when not to? It can't just be a blanket rule. It has to be more nuanced than that. Good points. And the response is very straightforward. Of course a rabbi can make a mistake. So can a medical professional. But what do we have to go on? That is why I always say, find someone you trust. Not some blind acceptance of someone you don't know. Find doctors and rabbis that you trust. And if you don't trust them, go to someone else. But we have a Torah that tells us that ultimately, that's how Hashem works. He says, I give permission to the doctors to heal, and I give the rabbis the authority to rule based on that and other factors. That's what we have to go by. Is it possible that the whole COVID is a hoax? Everything's possible. Is it possible that the vaccine is a, another conspiracy, which we'll talk about next week because I've received questions on that too? Everything's possible, but what else, what else do we go on? And is it possible that you also may be blind? So if you go by your own resources, how do you know you're right? Because you saw a video and the video is convincing. I know people swear, I personally know firsthand. You hear that from both sides. So I, for one, can't tell you anything firsthand. You have to take all the data. You hope that rabbis will be responsible and come up with a ruling and God will bless that ruling. And you know something in Tate, even if they make a mistake, but they did it with Yerushalayim, in a sense, God also confirms that. That it will protect us. And maybe sometimes the way to go is more caution. Is it possible that masks actually do more damage than they help? Of course it's possible. You know, wear a mask, you feel you know, somewhat stifled, suffocated almost, breathing your own. But you have to go by some ruling. And we can't just go by our own because we also may be blind. Are you and I the wisest people on earth? Even if the others are not. So that's why you need to have a combination of different factors here. And we, I don't believe in extremes. I think to find somewhere to listen to all aspects of it and then come away and say, okay, this seems the most likely healthiest approach, maybe the most cautious approach, the safest approach. That is how I would uh, approach the whole topic. Okay. With that, let's go to another question in this field. Satmar Super Spreader. Okay, hi Rabbi Jacobson. What are your thoughts on the recent crackdowns on the Satmar community from huge media corporations? Is this community that has already been infected being, being unfairly singled out? Should we be condemning our fellow Yidin's Hasanis weddings? After all, they are our brothers and sisters. However, the media giants tend to scapegoat Oxidim using one story of an apparent super spreader. I actually was interviewed on Thursday, this past Thursday, on Newsmax about the court ruling, the Supreme Court ruling, overturning and uh, rejecting New York Governor Cuomo's restrictions on synagogues and churches and so on. 
one of the main thing, arguments was because they're unfairly being targeted, with stronger restrictions than their secular counterparts. And the main point that I made there was that absolutely, from a Torah point of view, who cares more about health than the Torah does? Because life is sacred. So of course we're careful about health. The laws of Pekoch Nefesh are so severe how careful we have to be. The fact that some people may behave recklessly is that has to be dealt with. But to say that the Jewish people are, are in any ways not following those laws? So do we want government to be imposing? And especially the point I made was that this is also smacks of an anti-religious attitude. Not just anti-religious attitude. As if religion is the enemy. And what about the planes that are packed with and the malls and so on and so forth and the protests in the streets? So you clearly see an unbalanced approach. At the same time, internally, ourselves, our Rabbonim and our medical authorities, we should be careful. I'm not going to go make a statement about what happened with these large weddings because I'm not their authority. I hope they follow their Rabbonim and their medical experts the way the Tata asks us to do. That's my response. But even if you may find something you think that's not the right thing, we don't want government officials, and that's what the Supreme Court thankfully ruled, to suddenly decide, because they may be coming from their own discriminatory and biased approach against religion in general, against Judaism, whoever they decide to target. When the mayor de Blasio said, outrageously, when he was asked, well, synagogues you're closing down, you're fining. What about the thousands of people protesting? She says, how could you compare? This is systemic racism of 400 years, as if there's a difference of freedom of speech. The previous uh, justice, Supreme Court Justice Scalia, said it so well, and he wrote that in this country, freedom of speech protects more porn than piety. There is an anti-religious bias that needs to be acknowledged that emerges, unfortunately, in times like this. At the same time, we need to do what we need to do responsibly and regulate ourselves now, if someone's criminal, yeah, if someone's doing something criminal, so then we have to address it. But in times like this, you have to be very sensitive and make sure there's an equal standard and no double standard. Okay. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Recently, Rabbi Yigal Kamenetsky, the chairman of the Teir of Institute, the Institute for Teir in the Land of Israel, and Rabbi Professor Maria Gotel, Gotel published a new halachic ruling in light of the Increase in coronavirus morbidity. According to the rabbi, significant weight should be given to the fear of an economic collapse caused by a lockdown, even if the price of not instituting a lockdown is an increase in mortality from the disease. And they sent me a link. Obviously, the lockdowns have had a devastating effect on economies worldwide, and many feel with the benefit outweighed by the damage done, the damage is not limited to the economy and includes all sorts of person, psychological, social, and other damages to individuals and families. Now that Rabbonim, some Rabbonim, are beginning to change their, opinion, their opinions regarding lockdowns and with the devastation they are causing, when would civil disobedience be allowed by Aloha? For that matter, with a recent Satmar wedding, it appears that their Rabbonim don't think the lockdown should carry halachic weight. Many thanks. 
So I would say, and I'm not giving up sock here, but I think I'd say this pretty unequivocally, civil disobedience has no room altogether. Even if, even if the government is doing something that's inappropriate, there are many means. I don't think civil disobedience should be one of them. We discussed this, I believe, a while back. Besides the Chil Hashem Shebez and other things, there's court of law, just like the Supreme Court ruled. You can go to court of law. There's many remedies and other ways to pressure. So that's my general instinct. As far as the general topic, look, there are Abonim that feel this way, there are Abonim that feel that way. I don't think they all agree. That is why you can't, especially in a program like this, make one ruling. I tell you, go to your Rav or Rabbanim and follow their guidelines. That's what Allah demands. To make one ruling, some people feel, yes, the economy suffering is worse than the possible danger. Others feel otherwise. Some say, even a Suffolk, and nothing else is stronger than that. On the other hand, if economic, turn, economic lockdowns can cause also pekoch nefesh, this is for Rabbanim to rule on. So I don't think that anything should shift because some Rabbanim have a certain opinion. For the people who follow those Rabbanim, that's what they feel they want to follow. It's by all means. And I'm not saying anything here that's leaning one way or another. I'm just trying to be clear-headed and level-headed and just talk teredik about all this matter and all matters. And it's not the Kfarhoi Lomim. You have in history the idea where you have different Abonim have different opinions. It happens to be around pandemics, a Dever, a Magefa. It's pretty strong precedence that it was the number one issue was Pikuach Nefesh and the, and, the, and the Magefa element, the epidemic that had to be addressed. Economy maybe was very different then. Maybe it wasn't as important to some people. Because you could also make the argument people just got used to having a good economy. No. Now, if someone's dying from hunger and it's pekuach nefesh, that has to be addressed case by case. That's what I would say about this topic. Since we're already on this, it's a little not connected, but it's a follow-up. Let me just address this. Two weeks ago, I spoke about wealth, why God creates wealthy people. And then someone followed up by asking a question, is it appropriate for a wealthy person to live a luxurious life? In last week's program, you did not answer directly as to whether a wealthy person can live a luxurious life. There's no, uh, the black and white answer is actually that a person should not live by Moses. A person should be Kaddish Atzmecha, Bemutalach. You should always sanctify yourself, even the things that you're allowed so type of indulgence, indulgence in general is not a Teda-sanctioned uh, uh, approach to life. The fact, however, is some people have more means than others. So the question is, what does luxurious mean? That's why it's not black and white. For one person, luxurious. For another person, is regular. The Gemara talks about that, that every Jew deserves Sudesh Shleimah B'Shaiteh. Not just die, Mashamut, not just what to die, not just to have enough that fills your need, but also to have more. But the more is a big question what that more is. I would answer this, that this is something that should be talked to a rov, a mashpia, person who has the means. Does it mean they have to use it, they have to indulge, or they have to splurge? You know, there's a famous shalah, famous, there's a shalon, sech the He writes to his son, his son clearly was, had, had some money, because he's talking about, I heard that you're going to be building a mansion, a house, Armin. 
So God should bless you, you should build a place to learn, a place to daven. But then he says to him, but don't build more than you need to. Because Ledaiti, doing that, is ke'ein heschadas mina It's as if you're, you're avoiding, not thinking about the gula, you're building yourself a mansion as if this is your permanent place. So he didn't say, build a shack, build a sukkah, or just or rent a temporary place. Build, barachove. But you have to also know and have a measure that not to overdo it for many different reasons. But ultimately, what the answer to that is, how much and how... To do with this, each person should ask their Rav and Mashpia. Um, <clears throat> and the fact is, people who have, who have means do have maybe more than one home and so on. And I'm not criticizing that. If they're able to, they're able to. The question is, how much? And ultimately, whether it's all being used, L'Shem Shemaim, and the Kfei Shalakadosh Baruch Kiddush Hashem. That's the short answer. Okay. So let's do the Chassidus question now. And then we'll do the, yes, the essay contest. Okay. Chassidus question is an interesting from yesterday's Parsha, but it's connected to the themes we talked about a bit. So it seems appropriate. Rabbi Jacobson, in Parsha's Vayetze, we are taught by Rashi that Rachel gave the signs she and Yaakov had agreed upon to her sister Leah. In doing so, Rachel violated the trust and relationship that she and Yaakov had built and was an action that deceived Yaakov. This seems to be the opposite of the way a couple should establish their relationship and opposite to Torah's dictates not to deceive. How could our matriarch Rachel have acted that way? Does Chassidus have any teachings about this? Another person writes, same vein, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Every year when we read Parshat Vayetze, I'm left with an unhappy feeling. Yaakov, Rachel, and Leah all seem to exhibit the worst behaviors. Rachel deceives Yaakov. Leah goes along with her father's deceptive plot. Then Leah is jealous of Yaakov's affection for Rachel. What did she expect? And names her children due to her misery. Both sisters are in a competition with each other to have children. Yaakov seems to belittle Rachel when she cries out to him due to her infertility and shows zero compassion. Leah shows no compassion in her inf- to her infertile sister when Reuven brings home the Dudayim. Yaakov gets angry with Lovon, who accused Yaakov's party of stealing his idols, when indeed Rachel did steal them. Throughout my years in the school, we were always taught that the Ovis and Imoyas were righteous, but when reading the Pasha without disregarding the text, I don't see that. Can you help enlighten me? So... Of course, good controversial questions. And it only adds to the questions that we spoke about in the past weeks, where Yaakov deceives his father Yitzchak, received the brachas of Esau, and before that buys the birthright from Esau. So there's a lot of deception seemingly going on here. And the biggest question, what the Rebbe always points out is, even if it happened, why do we need to know about it? What's the lesson to us? How are we supposed to learn from this? Is this the way to behave? You know, why can't things be just straight? So, as I explained, and I continue to explain, when you really want to understand Torah properly, especially Apichsidis, you have to remember Torah is a spiritual story. It's a story of God's blueprint for creation. Yes, the events did happen, exactly as they're told. Emi creates in Everything is also literal. But there's much more going on. And when you get to the controversial, you have to go to Al-Yenim 
and then bring it down to Tachtenim. Because to start finding excuses, there are many commentaries. They try to find a loophole here and a loophole there, but it seems forced. So what's the deeper story? The deeper story is that this world is a deceptive world. Alma de Shikra. Now that doesn't justify us behaving deceptively, but sometimes you have to deceive deception. You have to speak on the terms of the world in order to get something done. This is called birurim in a way that we're, the mevarer is mislabish belavushe hamizbarer. Yaakov dressing the garments of Esav. We dress up in the garments of this world, in a shame, in a body. We speak the language of the world. We follow its customs as long as it does not break any halacha. In order to refine the world from within, from within. So the deception, as Yaakov told Esav, I'm sorry, Lovan, that Lovan Arami, you're you're a deceiver, you're duplicitous. I will be that way with you too. That's not he's, he's succumbing and compromising himself. It's the only way to transform. How do you teach a child the value of something spiritual, Torah, without telling the child, I'll give you a candy, a toy, a prize. It's on the child's terms that we speak. I gave the muscle with the Baal Shem Tov, that we have to give the food and drink to the animal soul and to this material world in order for them to cooperate. But the goal is elevation. So all the behavior is only in order to achieve the godly purpose. So now let's apply this. Rachel got the signs from Esau, from uh, Yaakov, because Yaakov said, Rachel said to Yaakov, we got to be careful, my father's a charlatan. He may try to deceive you and not let me marry you. And that's exactly what happened. So Yaakov gave her the signs. And then when she saw that her sister would be so humiliated, she gave the signs. So she basically went against her own concern and warning that she gave Yaakov this warning. So how do you explain that? So Bapashtu, the simple way is the compassion she had. Or it's a tremendous lesson in life. The sacrifice of a woman. Of course Rachel loved Yaakov, and Yaakov loved Rachel. Not just physical love, there was also a spiritual. They knew they were meant to be on the deepest levels. But sometimes a situation comes up and Rachel sensed it. Her deeper wisdom sensed that you have to be mesiris nefesh to that extent, giving herself up. What does Leah tell Rachel? I'm sorry, Leah tell Yaakov when Yaakov said, how did you deceive me? First of all, it was Rachel. But Leah went along. How did she go along? She said, you deceived your brother. So you see there's a correlation going on because Leah was meant to marry Esau. So her simcha, that she's freed from being with that person, went along and she had the deeper understanding of Rachel as well, that this is meant to be. In a strange way, Lovon, though he had his deceptive intentions, but Kabbalah and Chassidus brings that Lovon is Levon Elyon, he's a very high level. In his own way, maybe the Lovon below, for him it was in his subconscious. But somewhere God led him that Leah had to be the mother of many of the tribes. They may not have been conscious exactly of the details, but Rachel sensed something going on here, something much higher. So it wasn't just compassion. It was also recognizing a higher destiny. Lay understood it as well. Why did it have to come through deception? Why couldn't they tell Yaakov? Because that's the world in which we live. Some things have to come in a concealed way, just like some brachas from the chesed, the chesodim muchusim. 
So there's chesed that's revealed, but sometimes a chesed has to come in a negative form. Because they come from such a deep place. And that's how the story continues. So Rachel was a balas mesiris nefesh later as well. She ends up not being in the Maras HaMachpelah. She ends up being buried in Keva Rachel outside, never being with her beloved Yaakov. Because she's on the road to see her children. Another Mesiris Nefesh. That's the lesson. The lesson is Mesiris Nefesh for the cause, for what God wants. That's the beauty that comes out of this story. To the point that she was able to, she, was, she allowed herself to, in a sense, betray Yaakov. But at the end of the day, Yaakov had children with her, Yosef and Binyamin, Shvatim. At the end of the day, Yaakov understood that there was a deeper plan. It took time for him to learn it. But it did ultimately emerge. That's the brief answer to this. And now, time is very short, so I'm going to be very quick now. We have the custom at the end of each program to do the winners of uh, the, this sixth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest. So we're doing now the seventh place winners. Four winners. One English essay, creative one Hebrew men and Hebrew women. So briefly, we're going to begin here with uh, the English essay. They're called Window for Words by Moshe Miller, age 65, Chicago, Illinois, writing, translating, teaching, guiding, self-employed. Excellent essay. An excellent essay, Window for Words, about reframing. But not just reframing that psychology uses to have another cognitive perspective, but actually the words we use about experiences in life, including negative experience, actually reframe and change the reality. Very good essay in explaining that sometimes we're faced with negative issues, we should actually use different language, different attitudes, which draw down a different energy and transforms a negative into a positive. It explains a powerful thing that the Rebbe always would never say schlecht, bad. He would say not good, which gives you the ability that it has the ability to become good. Okay, the essay in Hebrew for men is called Collectivism and Individualism in the Teachings of the Rebbe, Abchaim Luria, Lud Israel. And this is exactly that. He uses a sikha from the Rebbe about uh, the Mishkin, whether it was the protim, the details, or the collective important, and demonstrates how in psychology it's, it's essentially a revolutionary approach that upends so much of psychological battle of the collective and the individual. Another good essay. The third essay, which we're doing the essay Hebrew Women, Machshava Bria, Healthy Thought by Mirav Basari, Sfarya Israel. And this talks about literally how to th- align yourself to think in a healthier way. And finally, the creative, the creative uh, submission, Mo'oidecha Anigun, Music, an original song composed by Moshe Gordon, age 19, Brooklyn, New York, a student at Temchitmim in Maristan. The beautiful introduction about what Nigan is and how he went through his transformation in his life from a more secular upbringing to, to a more Torah one. And this Nigan captures it in four stanzas. Check it out. And where can you see these essays? The English and the creative at chsidasupply.com and the Hebrew ones at diraloi.org. D I R A L O.org. And with that, say good yontav and Yudal Kislev. We say Mazel Tov to the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin to all of us who are connected to the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin forever. 
should be a good hachonet to Yutes Kislev, Chaga Geula, should march the Geula Amitiz Vashlema, Eismatrin the Geula Amitiz Vashlema, as the Rebbe said. We're here every Sunday, it is applied 8 to 9 p.m. Be well, be blessed. It should be a Geula Dika month, a Geula Dika Tomid. Thank you.